you would grab a Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 9, 1 Samuel 9, where we'll start this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 9, and you'll need a Bible this morning in this part of our worship. Uh, We will be looking through a number of different passages in this part of the Old Testament in 1 Samuel. Good to see you this morning. Always feel like uh, the 9 o'clock hour, we've got to kind of bring the energy a little bit. uh, And uh, sometimes at the 9 o'clock hour, there's not a lot of energy in me either, so uh, I'm going to do the best I can to try to to get us to where we're going a little bit and awake, but especially that we could be learning some things from Scripture this morning. Sometimes when I think about what this lesson that we're going to talk about is, it reminds me of the fact that sometimes I learn better by seeing a truth than just being told about it. And sometimes things stick, especially when I see it lived out. And that becomes one of the great advantages of the Bible, because the Bible does contain a lot of direct instruction. You need to do this and don't do this. But the Bible also contains a lot of stories about people's lives, and particularly stories where we see the whole story of a life and some of the pivotal moments in a life, and we can learn from those stories about mistakes that we can make and things we want to avoid and also things that are good that we want to emulate. And it kind of cuts out the extraneous details in a way that's hard to do in our own lives where we can zoom out and just see what's really important about a life. And so with that thought in mind, what we're going to do for our period this morning is we're going to study through the story or the life of King Saul, the first king of Israel. Saul's story begins with this unknown man who gains the throne and ends with him driven nearly insane with jealousy, dressing up to go visit a medium, and ultimately committing suicide on the battlefield. It is a rise and fall for the ages. It is just tremendous lows to tremendous highs and back to tremendous lows. But what's really amazing to me is that through his life, Saul changes so dramatically from this incredible humility that we're going to see in just a moment that he begins with to a level of pride that is homicidal. He is willing to kill for it. And so what I want to see as we study through this is just how pride grows. Because what I want us to see is in the life of Saul, we see illustrated the growth of pride from none to a whole lot. And so we can learn something from his life. Pride is one of those things that is sort of a unique issue for us. Because while we might have things that I struggle with something, you know, I'm struggling with honesty, or somebody's struggling with drinking, we struggle with different sins, and maybe what I struggle with is not what you struggle with. Pride is something we all struggle with. Pride is one of those sins that is universal, and it's also one of those sins that we don't ever just defeat forever. It's one of those that we have to keep an eye on, and we always have to watch our hearts and see where we are. And so from Saul, I think we can learn from how his pride grew from very little to a very great amount that ended up costing him everything, costing him the kingdom. So let's start in the beginning of Saul's life. We have to start with this humility. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, uh, Saul is hunting for some lost donkeys. And so he does what everybody does when they lose their donkeys. They go see a prophet. Right? No, you you do that because I think they were just out of options. They couldn't find them, and they thought, well, if anybody will know where the donkeys are, Samuel would know. And so they go to Samuel's house, 1 Samuel 9, 
and verse 18, this is what they, they find. It says, Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and tell you all that is on my mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. See, that's why you go to a seer right there, they know. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? So, Saul, he says, you, you're the one everybody's focused on, and your house is the best house. And Saul says, um, really? Do you know who I am? I'm from the smallest tribe and one of the weakest clans. We're not a big deal. And so he is sort of shocked at the honor. Well, then Samuel chapter 10 and verse 1 took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be a prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And he gives him a, a series of signs that he fulfills there in chapter 10 about him becoming a prophet for a moment. But, but Saul, I think what's impressive here is that Saul doesn't seem to be uh, expecting this. Not in, only in the sense that it was a surprise, but also in the sense that he doesn't think so much about himself that he thinks, of course I'm king. You know, when somebody tells you you're going to be king, there is the shock, but there also could be, well, you know, I've been waiting on something like this. It's about time somebody recognized how awesome I am. There is none of that in Saul. In fact, I like this in chapter 10 and verse 14. Chapter 10 and verse 14, when he gets home from the donkey hunt, I guess it wasn't really a hunt, but they were trying to find him. Uh, chapter 10, verse 14, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly about the don that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. He just kind of forgot about that part, right? The big headline news is the donkeys. Right? Not the whole thing about him being anointed as the first king of Israel. Okay, so I think this is an indication of Saul's humility at this stage. I'm not sure he knows what to do. Now, there is also this idea that maybe Samuel did this, and, and if Saul goes around talking about how great he is and how Samuel anointed him, maybe he's going to be a target for some people, and he doesn't have the, the cachet with all the people yet. This is not necessarily public knowledge, but he doesn't even tell his uncle. He's not going to tell anybody because that's the kind of person he is at this stage in his life. Chapter 10 and verse 25, you have uh, the assembly. I'm sorry, I don't want verse 25. Verse 20. <clears throat> Chapter 10 and verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Metrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. So... Here come the lots, which is the way that God is choosing. This is the guy who's going to be the king. And the lot comes to his tribe. The lot comes to his clan. The lot comes to him. And where is he? He's hiding in the bags, okay, with everybody's luggage. So what does that say about Saul? 
at the very least, I, I don't think we can fully understand the reasons why a young man like this on the cusp of greatness is going to hide. But I think at the very least you can say he doesn't think he's so awesome that he wants everybody to applaud him. Okay? He's not ready for that. That's not where his heart is. So I, I want you to see that in the beginning we have some really good signs. I mean, wouldn't you say if this was your king from a biblical standpoint... It's similar to Solomon, who in the beginning, Solomon is is asked by the Lord, ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon asks, well, I'm just a little child. I I don't know how to go out or come in. I don't know how to lead these people. Just give me some understanding so I can govern your people. It's an awesome prayer, and God is pleased with it. And so you say, well, man, with a king like Solomon, they're going to be in good hands. That's what you would say about Saul. With a king like Saul, they're going to be in good hands. I mean, things look good because he doesn't think so much of himself that he is already abusing his power or he looks like he is, uh, all this is going to his head. At least, not yet. Verse 25, Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord, and Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Samuel, Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? They despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. All right, so he has an opportunity here. He hears about some people who are opposing his reign, and he's got some people that are men of valor. So he's beginning to gather an army and a following. And so now he has some enemies, and he could easily have said something or done something about that, but he says no. He decides not to do that. Well, in chapter 11, you really have the consolidation of power under Saul because of this defeat of the Ammonites, and we're not going to go into that. But it just says, particularly in verse 11 of chapter 11, the next day Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who were survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. So here is Saul is now really king, not just in name, not just by anointing, but he's proven that he can do it. And now some of the people that support him are saying, hey, what about those naysayers? Bring them here. Let's kill them. Let's really establish that this kingdom is going to be about Saul. Verse 13, but Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So now that Saul has a little more cachet, they want him to kill these people, and Saul says, no, I'm not going to do it. Okay? This is a day that the Lord has given salvation. We're not going to go around killing everybody who said a bad word about me. Okay? That's over. That's done. Now, I want you to keep that in mind, because I believe this is a, is a scene that shows the great character of Saul initially and the great humility of Saul. See, for some ancient rulers, including many in the Bible, Forgiving something like this would be not even on the table. Okay? It would be, this is just about keeping my kingdom safe from rebels. We just got to kill the people that are going to talk like this and uh, make an example of them. But Saul is not that kind of person. So, I want you to imagine now, and we're going to have to read a little between the lines of Scripture. I want you to imagine now what, what would have happened after this. You have Saul, who now instead of looking for donkeys being out with the oxen like he is in chapter 11. Saul is now king. People around him are saying, long live the king. 
man, Saul sure is great. Sure, I'm glad we got a king. And they're, they're amazed at him. I mean, he's, he's taller than all the people. He's a fine picture of a man. He just looks kingly. In fact, it makes me wonder later on when Samuel goes in to, to find a king in Jesse's house. And he says, ah, that, the Lord's anointed is before me. And God says, no, no, don't look at the outward, look at the inward. I wonder if he's not looking for another Saul because Saul looks like a king. All the people are impressed with Saul. Something happens here, though. Because when you get to chapter 13, something is different about Saul in 1 Samuel 13. And the only way I can explain it is to think that there must have been a change because Paul, I'm Paul, not Paul, Saul started reading his own press clippings. Saul started listening to all the praise everyone else is giving him. In other words, pride begins to grow in Saul in this moment. So in chapter 13, the scene that I'm describing is Saul is fighting the Philistines, which he's going to be doing throughout his, his career, and he, they get this awesome giant army together to fight him. He's evidently made an agreement to wait for seven days for Samuel to offer the burnt offering before they go to fight the Philistines. But the people are scared, and Saul is tired of waiting. Evidently, Samuel is a little bit late. Not much late, but a little bit late. And so in 1 Samuel 13 and verse 8, 1 Samuel 13, 8, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. And offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God which he, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. And the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. So you have a, a definitive problem in Saul so strong that Samuel says, your kingdom's not going to continue. God's going to seek another man, someone who's after his own heart, a different kind of king because of the decision you made in this moment. So what Saul does is he offers the burnt offerings himself. He does not wait for Samuel the way he was instructed to wait. Now, I don't believe the problem here is that Saul couldn't offer burnt offerings because you have other times where David offers burnt offerings and Solomon offers burnt offerings and... There is no condemnation in that. Could it be that Saul is doing this himself, like him personally making the sacrifices? That's possible. But the real issue seems to be that he is not keeping the command of the Lord, which has to do with Samuel. What Samuel told him to do, he didn't do. And Samuel, as a prophet of Jehovah, says, this is not going to work. Now, why did he do this? He tells us why. I mean, he goes through his reasoning. He says... In verse 11, I saw the people were scattering for me and that you didn't come within the days appointed. In other words, Samuel, this is kind of your fault, not mine. We'll come back to that in chapter 15, by the way. Then verse 12, the Philistines will come down to me at Gilgal. I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So he is saying, I had to do something to get God on my side. Saul has his reasons, but 
But the question is, why did he have to do this if he wanted to seek the favor of the Lord? You know, there's a way we seek the favor of the Lord without sacrifice. You know what it's called? It's called prayer. We talk to God, and they could have prayed. Saul could have prayed. That's not a problem. I just can't help, though. If, if you were to ask me, what's the real issue in 1 Samuel 13? I can't help but see that the real issue is power. Saul is trying to say, I don't need Samuel to be king. I'm the king. I'm the guy. I'm not waiting on Samuel. I don't need Samuel's approval. I don't need Samuel to offer sacrifices. I don't need Samuel. I'm the guy. After all, I'm the king. So if I were to articulate that in one simple phrase, I would say that Paul, uh, Saul is not Paul. It's Saul. If I were to articulate in one phrase, I would say Saul says, I know best. I know best. Okay? I know better than Samuel. I know better than anyone else. I'm the king. I know best. Pride grows by getting us to the point where we think that we know best. That's the way pride grows. Now, with Saul, he starts humble, and then he gets successful, and then his success leads to praise, and then he begins to listen to his advisors and supporters who are telling him, boy, you sure are smart. Boy, great decision. Way to go, sir. And he begins to think, well, I just know best. And you can see that by the way he rationalizes away his actions. I had to do this because of this, because of this, and because of this. He's going to do that again in chapter 15. He's going to say, I had to do it because of this and this and this. I've got a lot of reasons for why I made my decision. And I can sympathize a little bit with Saul here, right? It's a difficult situation. It's hard when you're, you're scared, your people are scared, there's a war to fight, you're the one whose neck is on the line, and... You've got to make some tough decisions. But God expects him to respect his commands and not just respect his own judgment. That's the problem. And that is a pride problem. I know best. I know best. This is hard because we spend a lot of time in our lives making decisions. Day after day, we make decisions. Just today, we've already made dozens of decisions. Every one of them. And... We try to act wisely about that. Sometimes the decisions we make are about matters that are addressed in the Bible, but most of the time, they're not. Most of the time, when you are making a decision about which lane to put your car in and whether to turn your blinker on when you move over, it's not a decision that has much to do with the Bible, right? They're just decisions. We make decisions all day, all the time. And over time, we get pretty good at it. We make good decisions, and we have good judgment, and people begin to notice that, and they say, wow, you made a good choice there. You're a good person. You're a good one to talk to if I need to make a decision. And then it's very easy for us as we do all this decision-making to begin to say, you know what? I know how things should be, not just how they are, but I know when, when you should have made a better decision. You know what you should have done? You should not have done that. You should have done that. And you know what? Those clowns in Washington, they should have done this instead of that. And you know what? If everybody would just do this instead of that, and we become decision makers with good judgment about everything. And we think, I know best how everything should be. That's how pride grows. So if you want an application point in this, I would suggest that we be very careful about how seriously we take the praise of other people. People are going to say nice things about us, especially when we try to do right. People are going to have respect for us when we make good decisions. I'm going to recommend that we try to find ways to deflect effusive praise. 
to give praise to God and to give praise to other people, but to be very careful about taking and accepting praise for ourselves because this is where it leads. It leads to us believing the praise and it causing problems for our spiritual lives. So Samuel has some harsh words for Saul. Your kingdom won't continue. He's going to seek another uh, after his own heart. I want you to go with me to chapter 15 now, 1 Samuel 15. Chapter 14, Saul makes a foolish vow in the battle that ensues with the Philistines. Uh, He nearly kills his son over it. Uh, Saul is kind of beginning his descent. In chapter 15, verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So, completely destroy the Amalekites. We talked a little bit, a little bit about this last week with the, the Q&A about genocide. Um, verse 8 says, He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I had made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So, there's the issue. Agag, the king, is spared, and the cattle, the best of the animals, are spared, even though God said not to do that. So, I want to make clear... There is a sense in which Saul obeyed. He did utterly destroy. But there is also a sense in which they did not obey because they did not utterly destroy all the things that were told to utterly destroy, particularly the animals. So, verse 13, Samuel came to Saul. Saul said, And blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. There he is, the uh, almost bragging, right? Hey, I did what God said. Verse 14, Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Which is a funny way of saying, Hmm, if if you obeyed, then what's all this noise? 15, they have have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Notice what Saul does there. The people did this. It's their fault. The people wanted to do this. The people were thinking this. The people did it. Verse 17, Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Now, I want to stop there and and call your attention to that phrase. Because what he says there is, I don't know that the ESV is the best translation of this. It has to do with him being little in his own eyes and yet being made or elevated to being the head. Okay, You were little in your own eyes. You were humble, and yet God brought you up. And, and really, the focus of that is where you began to where you are. But now that you're here, you need to understand, Saul, that what the people do, you do, because you are their ruler. There is no distinction here between, well, I wanted this, but the people did this. That's not going to work. What they do, you do, and you are responsible for what they do. So that's the reason why, in verse 19, he says, why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? See, why did you do it? And then verse 21, Saul says, the people took of the spoil. And then Samuel says in verse 22 and 23, rebellion is as the sin of divination. 
because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. You see the idea, Saul wants to blame everybody else and God says, nope, you are responsible because you are the king. You're the head. And if you had wanted this to stop, you could have made it stop. But when you let it go, you became responsible. What we see here is a second step in pride, which is to just say, it's not my fault. Pride grows here for Saul because not only does he think he knows best, but he is so wise and so good that when something goes wrong, it can't possibly be due to him, right? I mean, how could it be me? Do you hear what everybody's saying about how great I am? I know best. No, there's reasons why this happened, but they don't have anything to do with me. Now, it's uniquely powerful with Saul because, as I've said, Saul is in a position of authority where he could control what happens and what does not happen. But instead, he blames the people. It reminds me a lot. I was reading through this text this week, and it, I always think it's funny. In fact, I read it to Zach, and we laughed a little bit about it because it's a funny text where Aaron, on Mount, when Moses is on Mount Sinai, and and the people come to Aaron and say, make us gods. And they, he gathers all the gold, and he says, Moses, you know the people? They're set on evil. So, you know, they gave me this gold, we put it in the fire, and this calf came out. This calf came out, like, almost like it walked out. I mean, who knows? I don't know how it got here. And Aaron is trying to pass off on the people what he had a hand in. If he had wanted to, he could have stopped them. That's the point. But when we talk about pride saying it's not my fault, what I'm really saying is we become convinced that we have good reasons for the things that we do, even if they don't turn out best. And if we think if we have a good enough reason that it makes something okay, that's where Saul lives. He's got his reasons. He's got what he was thinking. But just because he has good reasons why he thinks he's not wrong, it does not mean he's not wrong. It's pride that says that my reaction, my issue is due to their behavior. It is pride that says my spouse is always wrong, but I'm not. It's pride that says this is all due to them. If they would just get their act together, then I could be happy. It's pride. Now, we might not hear it as pride, but Saul shows us that that's pride. So, application point, just say it. In fact, I thought about having us just chant this as a group. I can always be wrong. Always. It's always possible that I could be wrong, and I can never forget that I could be wrong. Very often, just opening up the possibility that we could be wrong, is a game changer for us. We begin to think differently about it. Sometimes when we're in an argument and we finally consider, are they actually right and I'm wrong? Huh. And things just totally shift in the conversation. And that's what happens with Saul here. In verse 24, he finally says, I have sinned. Now we get honesty. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I fear the people and obeyed their voice. Isn't that interesting? Saul had all those reasons, didn't he? But they weren't the real thing. That's the real reason. I was scared. That's honesty. But it takes too long for Saul to get to honesty. He has to go through all of this argument with Samuel. And finally, this strong statement from Samuel opens him up. Well, things go downhill quickly from this scene. When Goliath 
taunts the Israelite army. Saul won't fight him. Instead, he sends a little shepherd boy to fight him. And David kills Goliath. I want you to look with me in chapter 18. Chapter 18, Saul hears the song. In verse 7, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Uh-oh. That's going to hit him right here. Well, what about what everybody said about me all those years? What about all the wars I won? Nobody cares about him now. David has eclipsed him. Verse 8, Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. If you know much about this story, you know things just get worse and worse. We might call it a paranoia. On and on he goes, concerned, more and more concerned about what's David going to do? What's David going to do? He tries to trap him, tries to give him a wife, and then get him to get the Philistines to kill him. Over and over again, he's trying to scheme against David because he assumes that if David has the people's hearts, David must want his kingdom. That's an assumption, but it's one Saul makes over and over again. Saul starts screaming at his son, 1 Samuel chapter 20, screaming at Jonathan, you have chosen David, your good friend, to your own detriment. And he actually curses at him. And then finally... David has to run away, and Saul chases him down, tries to kill him, different places. Uh, David spares his life, and, and twice Saul walks home in shame because he has been embarrassed by how crazy, how maniacal his suspicion has gotten. And then, as I mentioned in the beginning, Saul ends his life, dressing up to go see a medium, learning from the medium that he's going to die the next day. He is abandoned, he is miserable, hopelessly suspicious, incredibly negative, and yet desperate to save his skin and his kingdom. It's a losing battle. It's a tragic story. But what I want you to see from this part of his life is this idea. Uh, You're with me or you're against me. See, this is about how pride continues to grow into relationships with others. Saul has no ability to relate to other people. None. He can't do it. His relationships fall into one of two categories. Either you're on my team or you're against me. So here's David. He is a transcendent warrior. And wouldn't it be neat if Saul and David had worked together? Like David being his right-hand man. David being the the chief of his army as he was for a little while. David being son-in-law to the king. They could be on the same team, but not for Saul. Because Saul assumes if David's going to be great, he's a threat. You're either on my team or you're against me. And so he tries to make David his rival. He hears songs people sing, and he said, why don't they sing that about me? And so he begins to become negative toward him. And I just am so saddened by the idea that if, if Saul hadn't viewed the situation this way, Things could have ended much, much better for everyone involved. So pride, what pride does is it centers us around ourselves so firmly that our relationships with other people are affected. I can only understand you in terms of what you think of me. And if you don't think of me the way I like, then you're on the other team. Are you on my team or not? Whose side are you on? Now, please listen to me. i got a couple more things to say about this. 
Sometimes we hear that language. Whose side are you on? You're with me or against me? We know that language because it's a language God uses. Because with God, God's important enough to demand allegiance and to say it's either this or this. But we're not nearly that important. And the truth is, most people are neither with us or against us. In fact, as I heard one person say it, we'd be really embarrassed if we knew how little other people actually thought about us. But when we view our relationships in terms of, well, how do you feel about me? Then we become this extreme of pride. When somebody else's success feels like a threat to me, I have a pride problem. When I try to identify people solely on whether they're useful to me, I have a pride problem. So application point, and we're done, is when something good happens to someone, celebrate with them instead of feeling threatened, instead of being jealous, be genuinely happy without any strings attached when good things happen to others. All right, I appreciate your attention. Let's work on our pride. And we'll be dismissed for our classes.